This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Alan Gannett, and he is the founder and CEO of a company called TrackMaving, a marketing analytics platform whose clients have included Microsoft, Marriott, Saks Avenue, and GE. He has an upcoming book called The Creative Curve on how anyone can achieve moments of the creative genius, of creative genius, coming out June 12th, 2018 from Penguin Random House. Alan, are you ready to take us to the top? I'm ready. All right. So, software company, by the way, I'm a big fan of software companies. I always wonder why would a software person take any time to do something as unprofitable and boring as write a book? (laughs) Why write a book? So I, uh, I run a marketing software company and there's certain things you do when you run a marketing software company. And if you look at Marketo or HubSpot or Eloqua or any of these companies, they all at some point write a book. And the reason why is that I think as marketers, like we like to tell stories and we like to communicate and it's how we relate to other people. So I think In marketing technology, it's a really great way to be able to tell a deeper story and actually connect with our customers. Mm -hmm. So here's the risk with this interview. Most of my listeners are SaaS, software folks. And if if we go straight to author, they may tune out. What can we tell them about TrackMaven to help them understand you eat your own dog food, you know what you're doing? Yeah. So TrackMaven is a company that's about five years old. And it's a SaaS company backed by NEA. And basically what we do is we have our own proprietary platform where we ingest huge amounts of marketing data from big leading consumer brands. So you mentioned some of our clients before. Basically, we take all that data in, we give them their own visualization layer, their analytics layer, their reporting layer, and we have an in-house team of people who are basically you know, the best data people you could want that'll give you the insights you want and give you the answers you want. And so mm-hmm. instead of you trying to make your social media manager into somehow a data scientist, People hire us to give them those insights, give them those answers. Um, and it's a 52 person company and, um, you know, having fun. So how many customers do you serve today? We have 330 customers. Okay. 330 customers and mostly enterprise. Uh, it's mid market and divisions of enterprise. So this, a sweet spot customer for us is like a thousand employees where they need data, they need analytics, they want insights, but they don't have a team of 50 analysts somewhere. Got it. And they're paying you based off what? Is it a seat model or a data consumption model or what? No, it's a, um, it's based on the number of channels that we ingest for them. And so are we bringing in paid ad data, social data, you know, earned media data. And so the average customer is paying us about 25 to $30,000. Okay. Got it. And that's annually. Mm-hmm. 25 to 30,000 annually. Okay, good. So, um, there's a lot of software CEOs that come on the show and I know yeah, that they, now, you have, now you have your numbers. Your I do. I, I was going to say, have my, can you tell Nathan's a happy Nathan when I have my numbers? Right. I so, can tell. so, um, but you told me not to get too specific. So I didn't take the 300 customers times a $30,000 ACV to like try and pin you down, but we'll let the audience do that on Twitter. <laughs> um, when a software CEO backed by an NEA, by the way, how much have you raised total? Uh, 22 million. Okay. 22 million. Um, 
they will always, the, the CEO will be thinking, I really want to take time to build my brand, to write a book, but I don't know how to communicate this to investors and the team to make them think I'm unfocused. So let's start talking about the book. How do you communicate this initiative to your team and your investors and say, look, a book's important. It's going to take my time, but it's also going to help build the business. Yeah. So I started working on it about three and a half years ago. And so I had to do it slow just because I'm busy. Um, but I think it's pretty easy marketing tech just because like everyone has a book, right? You look at HubSpot with inbound marketing that really took off after the book came out. And so I think luckily in my space, particularly, it's a pretty important part of building a message, building a platform and building a brand. So it wasn't that hard of a discussion. Okay. What's the book title? So it's the creative curve, how to develop the right idea at the right time. And the book is all about this idea that when we think of creativity, whether you're a marketer or an entrepreneur, think about creativity as a sort of like mystical thing. You have to be overwhelmed with inspiration. But when you actually talk to some of the best creators, what they'll tell you is that creativity is a process. And so the book is all about closing that gap, right? Mm -hmm. If the people who are best at this actually say it's the most methodical, the people who are the worst at it say, well, like, it's just luck. Clearly there's a gap there. And that's what I wanted to fill. So I hate the title and here's why. And then I'm curious to get your feedback on it. If you teach a process for something, a process by definition, a Henry Ford assembly and produces the same car over and over. So if everyone follows this process that you say works, then everyone's creative output looks the same and nothing's creative anymore. I disagree with the premise of your question. It depends on what the process is doing and how, um, how multivariate the process is. So yes, if you were building a car and you had the same ingredients every time, but part of the creative process that's really successful is actually about how you ingest constantly new ingredients and new ideas. And so in the book, I talk about the fact that when I interview these famous creative people, so I interviewed you know, billionaires like David Rubenstein, Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, you know, startup founders like Alexis Ohanian or Kevin Ryan, who started you know, literally MongoDB, Business Insider, Guild. What they'll all tell you is that they spend a lot of time consuming content, right? So whether that's in film, watching lots of movies, reading lots of scripts and startups, seeing what's out there in startup land, understanding what those different ideas are, you need those different ingredients to have the raw materials for creativity. That's where so many people really fail is that they say, you know, why am I coming up with great ideas for novels, but I barely like to read. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So walk us through, I mean, how have you tried to communicate this to the, like an average reader or someone that wants to be more creative? Is it, is it like a step-by-step -step approach? Is it a storytelling approach? Like a fable almost? How have you modeled it? Yeah. So the book comes in two parts. So the first part is where I explain the inspiration theory of creativity. And this is how most of us in America think about creativity. Creativity is a solo thing. Think about Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. You have to be somewhat manic or neurotic. Um, it's overwhelming, right? When these ideas hit you, they just sort of strike you, this sort of lightning in a bottle moment. And then ultimately, it's kind of easy for these people, right? For these people, it's like intuitive. This is the standard model of creativity we have, especially in Western culture. But if you actually look at the science of creativity, the history of creativity, what actual creatives say, that is very far from the truth. You think about Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, they have thousands of people working for them. This is not a solo activity. When you actually look at studies, looking at the psychology of people who are creative geniuses, you see they're just as normal and just as messed up as everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so the first half of the book, I talk a lot about what the science tells us about creativity. But the science tells us is that everyone with an IQ over 104 has the same creative potential. That's over 40% of the entire world. How do you world. measure that? Like, Alan, how do you measure that? Though? I don't understand how, like, what's the measurement tool for that? 
Great question. So they have a bunch of different, so researchers have been studying creativity for years. There's actually a field of study that you would love, Nathan, called the, uh, the study of greatness. And it's yes. all about people who are great. Just, you know, you interview people like this, I guess, except for me. And in the field of greatness, one of the things we look at is measures of creativity. So for example, there's something called a divergent thinking test. In a divergent thinking test, you give a subject a prompt and you say, you know, how many ideas can you come up with when I give you this problem? Then you can actually look at the number and the quality of those ideas to assess how creative that person is. Okay. So that's a really good academic test to help us understand both creative potential and creative achievement. Mm-hmm. Walk me through. So I understand so the book. That's, that's the first half of the book. Sorry. Yeah. The second half of the book, I interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses, people who are actually alive. And when I talked to them, I found there was these four things they all did to help come up with their ideas. And so I break down into four main sections, these four things you can do to actually enhance your chances of having these moments of creative genius. And I explain the science of why they work, how you can apply them to your own work, and I tell the stories of how people use them And so that's really sort of the more actionable half of the book. CRMs might be the tool that I fight with the most. I just haven't found one that I really liked. I don't know if you guys are the same way, but they're just so tricky. And a while ago, I had a guy named John Lee on my show. He's the CEO of ProsperWorks. And he told me they just passed 40,000 customers and 24 million in annual revenue. So they're doing about $286,000 in revenue per employee. And I said, wow, why is this working? And I said, you know what? I'm going to try it. So I went to prosperworks.com forward slash love your CRM, signed up, and it immediately became clear why it worked. Those of you that love growth hacking, you should go to that link just to see how they do the onboarding. That's prosperworks.com forward slash love your CRM. In short, it's like magic. You know, I'm not the guy that, you know, finishes the sales call and then takes the time to actually put data into the CRM. They have this magical way of just doing it. And it's a beautiful thing. So every morning when I wake up, I just go, okay, what leads are ProsperWorks telling me to reach out to because they're most likely to close? And it works so well. And you guys know I love money and I love only focusing on the leads that are going to close. So I encourage you to try ProsperWorks. They're sponsoring the show. Check them out at prosperworks.com forward slash love your CRM. Folks, that's again prosperworks.com forward slash love your CRM. Okay, this is like bad foreplay right now. Tease us a little bit more. What is number one and two and leave number three and four open? (laughs) So number one, I talked about this a little bit before, is consumption. I'm interviewing people who are the top of their fields and over and over again, even to this day, they spend on average three to four hours every single day consuming content related to their vertical. So if they're a musician, it's listening to music. It's trying, you're hearing new sounds. They're a chef. They're constantly trying new food, ingredients. A lot of them have gardens that they tend to. The second one is imitation. So it was interesting because what I found was that all of these creatives consume huge amounts of content. But you know, most Americans watch a lot of TV, but we're not actually writing great screenplays or great movie scripts, right? And so what I found was not just how much they consume, but it's actually how they consume it. And how they consume it I give this story about Ben Franklin. So Ben Franklin, when he was 18 years old, um, his father found a letter he wrote. And it was all about arguing whether or not women should be educated. And you could say, well, what did he think? Well, he thought women should be educated. 
But that wasn't why his father, when he read this, got mad at him. The reason his father got mad at him was how poorly written it was. So Ben Franklin said, okay, I have to become a great writer. This is going to be a calling of mine. I need to prove my father wrong. And so he actually went out and bought a magazine called The Spectator. It's kind of like The Economist of the time. So, you know, very intellectual and worldly. And what he did is he would actually look at an article, outline it, and figure out the structure of these articles. And then he would imitate his own articles. Then to make it even harder, he would take individual paragraphs and break it up into the different ideas, shuffle around the outline, recreate the outline, and recreate the article. And so what I found was this method, this what I call the Franklin method, you find all these creators, they're not just consuming content, they're imitating it. A lot of them will outline, if they're a novelist, they'll outline their favorite novelist books. You know, how do they tell this narrative arc? You know, Kurt Vonnegut has this amazing lecture where he actually walks through the four different types of stories arcs that you see. He explains these. So imitation is the second one. And the third and fourth one, if you, I, you know, I won't, I won't mention it because you want me to... Yeah, hold it back, hold it back. Hold it back. Um, so here's what I want to do. So what I just heard you say is consumption's one thing, that's exposure. But then the second level is they're, they're doing kind of pattern recognition. They're trying to write a formula for who they like or who they consume so that they can replicate it yes. and then maybe add their own tweak. Give us an example of something you did when you're building TrackMaven, a piece of creativity, a pattern you studied from somewhere else and how you applied it to TrackMaven and how it grew revenue. Great question. So one of the things I saw with TrackMaven when we were starting out is I'm a big believer in brand. And so I saw that in the consumer space and in the small business space, brand, especially kind of cute or fun or whimsical brands were working very, very well. And I saw this pattern over and over again. I realized in B2B that wasn't happening. But there's no clear reason why it shouldn't happen, especially if you're selling to marketers. They're sort of they're fun-loving. They like stories. They, they are into it, right? And so we have this very adorable, cute Corgi logo. He's a mascot named Maven. I also have a real dog named Maven. He's a corgi. And um, there's a whole weird story there because Maven's younger than the logo, but we won't go into it because it gets really weird. But the logo is very cute. And we have stickers, giant banners, all this stuff. And people love it, right? If you looked at our Salesforce records of all the emails we've gotten in sales meetings, constantly they're talking about Maven, the corgi, how they recognize him, how they see him. And so we were one of the first true mid-market or you know, small enterprise brands to really embrace this sort of cute branding, this brand forward image. And it's been this hugely positive thing for us. I want to write an article at some point in my life about, I'm going to look in Salesforce and search how many deals mentioned the word Corgi and how much revenue was attached to it and do a little funnel of the Corgi pipeline. Yeah. See, I struggle with that kind of logic. Logic. I mean, I mean, a lot of people that have weird names, sometimes it's just, you know, it was a DBA and it worked better. The domain name wasn't available, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, something I find cute, I don't always like pay more for. So I, I but I might love it more. I just wouldn't pay as much because it doesn't seem as official. It seems like, oh, this is like goofy and fun. And it has a different connotation in my brain. What you're saying is that's helped you to a degree. But my question to you would be, I mean, is your AC, one third what it should be because it's too cute. I don't think so. I mean, if you look at if you look at sort of what we've done over the last few years, right? RACV has constantly been going up. We're constantly selling you know, to bigger and bigger companies, and what we find is that we're selling to marketers, right? So marketers like the fact that we're good marketers. We tell stories. We know understand brand. You know, some of the other analytics companies out there they have these very barren websites, and yet they're trying to sell to marketers. Marketers are like you don't even know how to market. Yeah. Why would I trust you to give me insights for my brand versus we're looked up to? So it's a very different paradigm. 
Yep. So, so, um, when does the book come out? What's the release day? June 12th, 2018, the U S and Canada, June 14th in the United Kingdom and the UK Commonwealth. And then later this year in Japan, China, Taiwan, Ukraine, and Russia. So very soon. That's exciting. What is, are you a competitive guy? Do you have a, a target number of book sales you want? Of course. And you like numbers. I'm not What's gonna your target. You. I'm come not on. Gonna tell you. I'm not going to tell you. Why, why do you come up with a target? Um, because I like to work backwards from a plan. Same reason why in business, you know, you make a three-year model so that you can work backwards and figure out what are the things I should be doing today, um, in order to get there. And you know, yep. there's some things you're supposed to do, like be on Nathan Lotka's hit podcast. I will have to tell you when you do a Google search and you can all do this. So many authors have written pieces that say the Nathan Latka effect and they go, boom, 2000 more boom, sales on this day. Boom. So boom. It's, it's, not, greatness. It's, it's happening not, right here. It's not bestseller worthy, but 2000 extra sales in a week or two does help some people. Amazing. Um, what are you, so, so I mean, track Maven, you launched it how many years ago? 2000, what? Late 2012. So it's about five, almost five and a half years old. Okay. Like you're, how, how old are you? I'm about to turn 27. Okay. So young guy, no, like very little response. Oh, thank you. Well, relatively young. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can kind of do whatever you want, do anything you want. You've been in one thing for five years. You're now doing a book. I mean, do you ever go, what's the opportunity cost of staying focused on this one thing? And if so, how do I figure out how to sell track name and launch something new? So I'm very much a, what's in, like, I'm very much about the journey, right? And I really focus on, okay, like, am I learning? Am I having fun? Am I doing these things? And those are my things. You know, I grew up in a middle-class household. I've never been one who's thought that, like, money is the be-all, end-all. If I lost- We're very life, different that way, by the way. I lo nobody loves money as much as Nathan. <laughs> I can't even handle this. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, if it was all gone tomorrow, like, I, you know, I'd be fine. I'd be happy. And so for me, it's much more about, am I learning? Am I having an impact? I love right now, like, you know, we have a lot of people who are early in their careers who I get to talk to and coach. We have a lot of customers who look to us. Like when Facebook changes their algorithm, we're the phone call, right? Mm -hmm. We're the ones who are the 3 a.m. Like, oh my God, what do we do? And I really like that role. And so... For me, I think what's more likely is I'll do this till whenever it ends, if that's you know five years or 15 or two years. But I think afterwards, I'd probably do something else just to mix it up, become a professor or something. Oh my gosh, there's no, I've, I've never heard of any more boring in my life. Uh, anyways, so, so you mentioned Facebook real quick before we wrap up with the famous five. You know, it sounds like 300 customers, $30,000 ACV call, you're doing about 9 million in ARR right now. If someone comes to you and offers you, you know, 6X ARR, you know, Facebook offers you, call it 60 million bucks, do you sell the company? Uh, no. I don't believe you. What, 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 what goes into your brain to figure out, like what, what pieces go in to help you analyze the exit? To help us analyze and exit. I mean, I think at any time you're thinking about your company, it's, it's a really about the people, right? So like, what are you going to be doing afterwards and the management team and the employees? Um, how are shareholders being treated? I mean, none of these acquisitions are ever as straightforward as like, here's, I mean, not in our space. We're not, here's the amount of cash, right? There's a lockup, there's retention periods. What are you giving up? You know, what's the growth of the business at that time? And right now we're at a time where everyone's, you know, taking money away from their marketing agency and they're starting to, you know, hire companies like us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when thing, when the goings, when everything's good, it's sort of, uh, it's hard to sell. And obviously that's also the time when people want to buy you. So it's a bit of a conundrum. All right, Alan, let's wrap up here with the famous five. Number one, what's the last business book you read? Um, I reread the hard thing about hard things, a fair book. 
That's a good one. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying right now? Um, a CEO that I'm following or studying right now, other than you, obviously. You get no brownie points for that. <laughs> um, I, oh my God, there's so many. Name um, your favorite really like, to get breakfast with in DC. Well, I was, no, I was going to say, I really like Nick Maida, who's the CEO of Gainsight over in San Francisco. He's just, he's great at building culture, fundraising product. He's sort of like somehow does everything and Gainsight's been growing like crazy. Are you selling to them right now? No, I'm not. They are a customer success platform. That doesn't mean anything. He could be wanting to expand. You can't even give a straight face when you say that. No, it's just, it's just such a you guys, listen, you guys listening to the podcast, you can watch, comment. you can watch the YouTube video and, and uh, judge for yourself. Number, right. number Listen, three. Listeners, I've known Nathan for a while. And so I'm going to give him so much shit about this. <laughs> number three, uh, what's your favorite online tool for going to business? A favorite online tool for going to business, I'd say is Salesforce. Number uh, three, how many hours of, or four, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Eight. Okay. And what's your situation? Married, single, you have kids? Separated. Okay. So, and no kids yet? No kids. I have a crazy four-year-old mischievous Corgi though. <laughs> Doesn't count. All right. 27, little Corgi. A last question. Take us back seven years. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? 20-year-old self wish that I uh, listened to other people's advice better because typically the reason a best practice is the best practice is because it's a pretty good idea. Guys, there you have it from Alan Gannett. Again, launched TrackMaven many years ago, scaled to 300 customers, $30,000 ACV, around 9 million AR today. And I go, why the hell do you launch a book? And he says he wants to have an impact and be a professor. What the hell? I don't know what's going on, but <laughs> that's what he wants. Professor, mind share, thought share. It's called The Creative Curve. Go check it out today. Tries to decode how anyone can really exercise their creative muscle. Everybody has it. Alan, thank you for taking us to the top. 